Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, welcome to GCC. Uh, I just want to say thanks for being here. Uh, we recognize that this uh, might not be the most comfortable place to have church. It's really cold in here. It's cold in here every Sunday morning. Everyone's always bundled up. Um, next week, we might start some fires on the floor, and we can huddle around those. Uh, and it's, it might not be the most convenient place to have church either, uh, just with street parking and everything. But you're here, and that, that says a lot. And I hope you know that that doesn't go unnoticed, that we're super thankful that you're here and a part of our community. If you're visiting, welcome. I uh, hope you yeah, feel right at home. And, and if you're exploring what Christianity and church is all about, we're really glad you're here. Next week, we're going to start uh, a new series going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling this series Live because when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us how to have a fulfilled life. He's teaching us what it looks like to live as people who are residents of his eternal kingdom. And so that's what we're going to start next week. So I hope you will join us as we start to look at, at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this week, uh, we're just going to kind of do, we're going to take a step back, and this is just kind of a standalone sermon um, that uh, will kind of set a little bit up for, for as we look at what it means to live as Christians next week. Uh, so we're going to be today in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start just with one, one verse here, verse 18. But before we do, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Thanks for your grace and your goodness. Um, as we sang earlier, it is by your grace alone, God, uh, that we even have life, breath in our lungs, blood th flowing through our veins. But more than life, God, you've given us salvation, eternal life. And again, that is by your grace alone. So help us to remember that grace. Help us to walk, uh, walk in that grace. Help us to remind one another of that grace uh, as, a, as a church family. God, this morning, as we look at your word and as we consider how, how we change as Christians, how we transform, uh, help us to remember that grace. God, I pray that nothing that is said uh, or done or sung here on Sunday morning would be uh, communicating any kind of message other than uh, the gospel of your grace in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly, uh, but ultimately, God, I pray that you were glorified and that Christ, you were exalted in our service here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how many of you uh, did have some kind of New Year's resolution this year? No one? Come on, show your hands. No one? Okay. Um, how many of you are still doing it? Like, you're good. Good job, Laura. Um, <laughs> Jenna and I didn't uh, really come up with any New Year's resolutions to start the year, but uh, a week or so into January, we were at a staff meeting, and Hunter was explaining how she was, gonna, she was trying to stop drink coffee. And uh, a few days later, I asked her how it was going, and she said she felt amazing. She was sleeping better, uh, falling asleep uh, faster. She was less anxious about things. I think she said she was sweating less too, which is a good thing. Um, basically, basically the lack of the lack. Where is she? I'm sorry, Hunter. The lack of the lack of coffee in her life was unlocking the full potential of her mind. It was making her uh, superhuman. It was great. And so I went home and I told Jenna about all of the benefits that Hunter was experiencing not drinking coffee, and the that's kind of how the conversation ended. And I woke up the next morning and come out into the kitchen, and my wife is unplugging her coffee pot, 
and like taking it into the laundry room and putting it away up in a cabinet. And I was like, what are you doing? She said, we're not drinking coffee anymore. So uh, Hunter inspired her um, to, for us to not drink coffee. That lasted about a week and a half. I enjoyed my coffee this morning um, and I needed it. So New Year's resolution didn't last too long. So maybe you came up with some kind of resolution, some kind of goal. Uh, some Maybe it's diet related. Uh, fitness related, maybe you're trying to remove something from your life, whatever it is, we usually always have these goals or resolutions that are motivated by a desire to change. There's something in our life that we either want to grow in or we want to want it to be different, we want to change, and so uh, we set these goals and resolutions to try to accomplish that change. And this is true in the Christian life as well. We want things about our life, our relationship with Jesus to change. Maybe it's a habitual sin that you just can't overcome, and so you want that to change. Maybe you recognize a lack of knowledge of Scripture, and so you want to change. You want to grow in your understanding of the Bible. Maybe there's been a lack of consistency in your involvement in the community, and you want to see that change. You want to be more involved in community. And this isn't a bad thing. Change is not a bad thing. It's a biblical thing. We call this sanctification. Sanctification is the growth in Christlikeness. It's the growth in holiness. It's it's the process by which we become more like Christ as people who follow him. And it's good to grow. It's good to want to change. But sometimes our methods of that change can be more unhelpful than helpful. Uh, we come up with short fixes that eventually fizzle out. And so if we want to read our Bible more, we say, I'm going to set my alarm for an hour earlier than I usually do. I'm going to wake up early so that I have time to read my Bible. This isn't a bad thing until eventually you sleep past that alarm and then the habit gets broken and then you just start sleeping in again. Or maybe you want uh, help overcoming some type of sin and so you set up an accountability uh, uh, system with a friend and the accountability works for a while. They text you for a few weeks and then they get busy. They stop texting you and the accountability fizzles out. These aren't, and maybe, maybe I'm just describing my experience. I don't know. This is what like Christianity has been like for me for a lot of my life. Uh, very self-helpy, uh, very discipline-focused, very me-focused, where I try to do and not do things that set me up to change in some kind of way that I want to change. And honestly, this becomes very discouraging and pretty crushing. And so there has to be something better for us as Christians. There has to be a better option for how we change. I think there is. I think Scripture gives us a better option. So that's the, that's the question I want to answer this morning. How do Christians change? How do we grow? How do we transform? And if we approach this, if we approach change as Christians, the same way we approach change in every other area of our life, then we will end up with a list of do's and don'ts that will crush us, discourage us, and we might not actually even change at all. Or if we do, it'll be for the wrong reasons. And so instead of a list of do's or don'ts, what I think we'll see today is that what we have is a person, a person to look at. And so the main point today, Ian said it earlier, is you become what you behold. So that is what I hope we walk away with this morning, is you become what you behold. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So if you'll read it with me. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant in the Old Testament had glory. He says that there was glory in the Old Covenant. There was glory. 
God reveals his glory on Mount Sinai, and he reveals his glory in the tabernacle when he lives with his people uh, in, in, in the temple. And Moses' experience of that glory had to be with a veiled face. There was, a, there was glory revealed in the old covenant, but when it was experienced, it was experienced by one man, Moses, and he had to approach God's glory with a veil covering his face because the glory was too strong. Now, the, in contrast, the new covenant, what we have in Christ is that not just one person can experience the glory of God, but all. All can experience the glory of God, and we can experience it with an unveiled face. There's nothing hindering our view of God's glory. There's nothing blocking it. There's nothing filtering it. We get to experience the fullness of the glory of God in the new covenant because of what Christ has done for us. And so he says, with we all, all of us, not just Moses, all of us, with an unveiled face, nothing blocking our view, are beholding the glory of the Lord. We get to behold God's glory, and then that transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does transformation happen? By beholding, by beholding the glory of the Lord. So let's break this down a little bit. It's not by glancing, not by a passing look, not, not by a, a, a quick look once a week on a Sunday morning at the glory of the Lord, but by beholding, by contemplating, by gazing, staring, reveling in the glory of the Lord. The word here has, has connotations like it's like you're looking in a mirror. And so what, what, what Paul is doing here is that as, as you look at the glory of the Lord, as you behold the glory of the Lord, it's as if you were looking in a mirror. As you behold the glory of the Lord, you're in a mirror. The reflection you're seeing is yourself, but it's being transformed into the image of that glory. So as you look at the glory of the Lord, it's not like you're looking in a mirror and the glory of the Lord is changing to look like you. You're looking in a mirror and you're the one that's changing to look like that glory. So behold the glory of the Lord and you will start reflecting that glory, which has massive implications for our life as Christians, for growth, for sanctification, for change. We change by beholding. And I don't think this is a foreign concept that's like, just we just see in the Bible or in our spiritual life. I think we see this in other areas of life. One of my one of my best friends is named Sean, and we met in college. And uh, we after college, we both got hired by the same church to do youth ministry together. Around the same time, we started going to seminary together, and we uh, we went to the gym together as well. So this is what a week looked like for Brad and Sean. Monday morning, we'd wake up at 5 a.m. and we'd drive up to Portland and we'd be together all day till we got home at midnight. And then Tuesday, we'd wake up and we'd go to work together. And then on Tuesday after work, we'd go to the gym together. And then Wednesday, we'd go to work together and then the gym together. We spent time, so much time together that <laughs> to this day, my wife calls Sean my other wife. Um, and so spent a ton of time together. And this is what started to happen. We started becoming the same person. We started wearing the same clothes. We started using the same phrases. We started making the same jokes. We started looking like one another. We just started becoming the same person because you become what you behold. We spent a lot of time beholding one another and we started to become one another. And so maybe something like this has happened in your life. Maybe it's with a friend, a spouse, coworkers. Uh, maybe it's like a, like a hobby. The more time you've spent uh, pouring over some kind of hobby, the more that hobby has actually shaped how you live, what you wear and, and where you go and what you do. And, and with your free time, what we behold shapes who we become. So we become what we behold, and as we behold the glory of the Lord, we'll be transformed into that image. Now the question is, what is the glory of the Lord? 
Uh, God's glory is, is something that we see all throughout scripture. And it has a lot of different senses to the word. And so it can kind of be hard to, to like define and, and wrap our arms around. But I think the simplest way of understanding God's glory is to think of it as all of God's perfection. All of God's manifest, awesome, holy perfections put together, all of them, that's God's glory. And, and when those perfections are on display, that's God's glory being seen. And so when we bring God glory, we're making his perfections known. When God wants the knowledge of his glory to fill the earth, he wants the knowledge of his perfections, his character, who he is to fill the earth. And so when we behold the glory of the Lord, what we are beholding is God's perfections. So then where do we see all of God's perfections on full radiant display? If you're still in 2 Corinthians, uh, just look at chapter 4. We're going to look at two verses. First one is verse 4. And it's talking about people who don't know the gospel and how they've been, they've been blinded to the gospel. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them, and here's, here's what I want us to see, keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, so just jump two verses down. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Where do we see the fullness of God's glory? Where do we see all of God's magnificent perfections on full radiant display? It's in Jesus Christ. We see the fullness of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God himself in the flesh, the image of the invisible God who entered into our world to save us from sin. And all throughout Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can see God's perfection, God's glory on display. In Jesus' life and ministry, we see God's perfect patience, his perfect compassion, his perfect mercy. In Jesus' sacrificial death, we see his perfect justice, his perfect love, his perfect humility. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see his perfect power, perfect victory, his perfect rule and authority over all things. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see the fullness of the glory of God. And so if we become what we behold, and the goal is Christ-likeness, if we want to become more like Christ, then we behold Christ. We stare, we gaze, we contemplate. We remind ourselves daily, regularly, consistency of the gospel. We look to Jesus to remind ourselves of his love for us. We look to him to remind ourselves that we're united to him, one with him. We look to him to remind ourselves of our new identity, that we're a new creation. We look to him to remind ourselves of our justification, that we are righteous, no longer guilty, no longer sinner, but saint, holy, pure. And the more we look, the more we become like him. Our sanctification happens when we contemplate and look at our justification. And actually, our justification, our initial salvation happens in the same way that our sanctification does. And to, to see this, I want to actually look at a, a short story in the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 21. You can turn there if you want. It should also be on the screen. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites, God's people, are wandering through the wilderness. They've been rescued from Egypt. Um, in Exodus, and they're wandering through the wilderness. And all throughout their, their, their wilderness wanderings, they're grumbling and they're complaining about how horrible life is, how miserable, miserable it is, and how they should be back in Egypt. That back, being back in Egypt and slavery would be better. 
And we know, uh, well, grumbling, complaining comes from a place of pride. It comes from a place of saying that uh, I, sh- I deserve better than this. God owes me more than what he's giving me. And we know throughout scripture that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And God's opposition to the proud in this particular story comes in the form of poisonous snakes. And so we're going to read Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. There's no food, but we have it. It's just worthless. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So they're wandering through the wilderness, they complain, and they grumble, and so God sends fiery serpents that start biting them. The poisonous snakes, the, the bite is deadly, and so they start to die. They realize their sin, they repent, they cry out to God, they cry out to Moses to intercede on behalf of them. Moses intercedes on behalf of them, and God instructs Moses to, create, to craft a bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, and anyone who is bit, who looks at the serpent, who's lifted up on a pole, will live. They'll be saved. Maybe you can see where this is going. Uh, In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus identifies himself with the serpent raised up on the pole because we all have been bitten. We've all been bitten by a deadly poisonous snake, and it's sin. And it is going to kill us. There is nothing we can do upon, with our, in our own power, under our own strength, by our own will to save ourselves from the deadliness of sin. Our only hope is to look to the one who became sin. See, the, the, the irony in the wilderness for the Israelites is that the very thing that was killing them is what's raised up on a pole. And the very thing that is killing us, our sin, is what Jesus took upon himself when he was raised up on a cross. Jesus became sin so that we wouldn't have to suffer the consequences for it. And we are saved from our sin when we look to him. When we behold Jesus Christ, the son of man lifted up on a cross. Our justification comes from looking to the son of man lifted up on a cross. And our sanctification, our growth, our change as justified people comes the same way. By looking to the son of man lifted up on a cross. We don't graduate from the gospel uh, and, and, and move on to like Christianity 201. The whole degree program that we're in for the rest of our life is the gospel. And each class that we take is just diving us deeper into God's glory revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been saved from our sin by looking to the one who became sin. And we don't all of a sudden start fighting sin under our own power. We fight sin the same way we were saved from sin by looking to the one who became it. You become what you behold, but here's the problem. We spend a whole lot more time looking at anything but Christ than we do looking at him. 
And so you're going to become what you behold no matter what, no matter what you're looking at. It's going to shape you. It's going to affect you. It's going to transform you. And so if you behold finances, your bank account, what money can buy you, the, the security or comforts that money can provide, you'll most likely become greedy and discontent with life. If you behold a, a, a type of body image, uh, and if you gaze and focus on becoming something, looking like something that you don't already, then you'll probably become jealous and bitter. If you spend your time beholding what's going on in the world, news, then you'll most likely become anxious and angry. If you spend your time beholding religious works, religious duty, doing good Christian things, then you'll most likely become hypocritical and pharisaical. If you spend your time beholding change and just focusing on changing, then you'll most likely become discontent and frustrated with where you're at in life. These things aren't necessarily bad, but you're going to become what you behold, and so what are you beholding? The more time you spend beholding Jesus Christ, the more you will become like him. The more patient, loving, sacrificial, gracious, compassionate, and humble you will become when you stare at him. Why? Because you're already perfectly patient. You're already perfectly loving. You're already perfectly sacrificial. You're already perfectly gracious, compassionate, and humble. Christ's perfection is yours. You're already that. Your identity in Christ makes you already perfect. And so the more time you spend looking at that, the more you're reminded of your identity in him, and then you just start living like who you really are. You start living out the identity that's been freely given to you. All of these things are already yours in Christ, and so when you behold him, you start walking in them. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking at? What are we beholding? What are we spending our time focusing on? What are we setting our gaze on? What are we staring at? What are we putting all of our attention towards? It's shaping you, so is it Christ? Now, admittedly, it's difficult to look at Christ because everything else in our life is so attractive and designed and marketed to draw our eyes away from Jesus and towards whatever it might be. And so there's all kinds of distractions, all kinds of things vying for your attention over Jesus. And so this is where spiritual disciplines are helpful. I kind of dogged on them earlier, but spiritual disciplines are really good when their purpose is rightly understood. When the purpose of spiritual disciplines is to position us in front of Christ so we look at him, they're a really good thing. This is, what's the purpose of spiritual disciplines? To help us behold Christ. Why do we read the Bible? So that we can remind ourselves of the gospel through God's written word. Why do we pray? so that we can align our heart, our desire, our will to the will of the Father, so that we can be reminded through our unhindered access to a holy God that we've been saved by Jesus. Why do we memorize scripture? So that the truths of the gospel are embedded in our hearts and minds. Why do we engage in silence and solitude? To cut off all distractions, to re remove voices and noises so that we can focus on beholding Christ. Why do we fast? So we remember that ultimately our satisfaction will come through Jesus and that we will be reminded of the gospel and behold him in our physical hunger. Why do we gather together? Why are we here? Why are you here? You're here to be reminded and to remind one another of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we gather. 
Why do we have accountability partners to help us overcome sin? So those people can remind us of the gospel. So they can remind us of our identity in Christ. Why do we, why do we sing songs? We sing songs so we can remind each other truths about what Jesus has done for us, about who we are. We do these things as a means to an end, not as an end themselves. And the end that we are using them to move ourselves towards is beholding Jesus, beholding the glory of the Lord in the gospel of Christ. Become what you behold. And so just in conclusion, I would ask that you dream with me a little bit about what it might look like if we as a church resolved to do this. If we committed ourselves to beholding the glory of the Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. And if we committed to helping one another do that as well. Because to be honest, there's times when we don't have the strength to lift our head to behold the glory of Jesus. And that's when we come alongside one another and, and help one another see who Christ is. What would it look like if we did this? How would it change our church family? How would it change our Sunday gatherings? How would it change our GC groups, our friendships? Going beyond the church, how would it change our workplace, our neighborhoods, our city? What would it look like if we all, with unveiled faces, beheld together the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ? And slowly but surely, by the grace of God, we're transformed into that same image. I think it would look pretty awesome. I think it would transform our church. I think it would transform our city. So my, my, my charge, my challenge, as we start to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we're titling it Live, because what Jesus is doing is calling us to live a certain kind of way, a way that looks very different than the world around us tells us to live, a way that is upside down uh, in, re in relationship to the way the, the world tells us what is good and evil and right and wrong. And so in order to actually start walking in line with what Jesus is going to tell us to do, we got to first behold him and look at him. And we're going to remind you that every single Sunday as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. But before we jump into that, consider this, resolve together to do this, to behold the glory of the Lord and the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you that you're a perfect God who has made your perfections known. God, you've revealed yourself to us in the gospel. That's something we, we do not deserve. That is an incredible gift from a loving God that we get to see, we get to experience your glory. So much so, God, that as we look at it, as we behold it, as we, we stand before it, it changes us, it transforms us. God, thank you that you have not just saved us from our sin and then stepped back to let us figure things out on our own from there. But God, you are intimately and actively involved in our lives right now. Thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is truly the only message that will ever bring us any hope or life. And I ask that as a church, we never, never waver astray from that message. As we sing now and together proclaim the, our desire to turn our eyes towards you, Jesus, help us to do that not just this morning in church, but every single day of the week, wherever we find ourselves. God, we love you and we thank you. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.